are continuing in our series through the Gospel of John. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to John 16, verse 5. And we are actually going to pick up halfway through verse 5, where we left off last week. Uh, In the verses leading up to this one, Jesus has been telling his disciples that he is leaving, that this is the end of the time that he will have with them that they've enjoyed over the last few years. He says, I'm going back to the Father. And he makes it very clear that in the aftermath of what's about to happen, the disciples are going to face persecution from the world. And they need to be prepared to face that. He says, I'm going back to the one who sent me to you. And then he continues with these words, picking up in John 16, halfway through verse 5. Uh, He says, none of you ask me, Where are you going? Rather, you are filled with grief because I have said these things. But very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the Advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin because people do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Let's pray. Jesus, we uh, open up our, our hearts, our minds to you this morning, and we recognize that as human beings, I'm sort of, the, the spiritual battle that is playing out in the human heart and mind uh, is one of a truth uh, versus falsehood that we all struggle to some degree to figure out what is the true narrative uh, of the universe? What is the true narrative of humanity? What is the true narrative of my life uh, versus the, the, um, the voices that sometimes play in my head and the false narratives that I sometimes find myself adopting and living out. And so we uh, open up uh, our hearts, our minds, the, the narratives that we carry, the life map that we've created, and we uh, come into a place, Lord, we want to be in a place where we just say, I trust you. I trust you, Jesus, to erase what needs to be erased, to redraw what needs to be redrawn. Holy Spirit, would you come and speak to us uh, about sin and righteousness and judgment and even the world that is yet to come. Uh, We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As Jesus explains that he is preparing to leave this world, and go back to the Father, the disciples are grieved. And that grief is sort of dominating their perspective. It is their primary reality, is the thing they feel most tangibly and most clearly. All they hear when Jesus is speaking to them is that Jesus is going to leave, that He's going to die, that they will be left on their own, and that they are going to die. Likely, at the hands of persecutors. But as Jesus continues to talk to them on his final night with them, he continues to um, direct their attention beyond, above uh, the grief that they're feeling. 
He's saying you have to look beyond the grief of the immediate and the circumstances that we're faced with tonight. And he points them back to the bigger picture of what God is doing uh, in the universe. Uh, He says you're filled with grief. I, I get that. But just pause for a second and think about where I'm going. Like see past my death and the cross and even past your own death. Just think, where, where am I going? And, you, and I almost imagine the disciples sort of awkward, this awkward silence around the table as they all kind of sit and think, wait, yeah, where is Jesus going? Like where, where is He actually going to be? What's that actually going to look like? He says He's going back to the Father Interesting. I, I, I wonder what it would be like to see him there. And, and Jesus continues, he says, truly, it, this is actually better. It's actually better for you that I go. It is for your benefit that I'm leaving, that I'm going back to the Father. Uh, you want me here. I get that. But as Jesus tells Mary at the resurrection, he says to her essentially, hey, don't cling to me so tightly. You are clinging to me in bodily form as I am here, but it's better for you that I go and send the Spirit. Uh, and, and that's a big deal. I think most of us and probably all of the original disciples would have preferred to have Jesus uh, here in the flesh uh, to, to lead, to guide, to ask questions to directly. I think given the choice, most of us would say, yeah, let's, let's do that. Let's have him here. And yet he insists, no, 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 the Spirit's coming and it's going to be better for you to have the Spirit than it will be to have me in physical bodily form, which probably leaves them asking all sorts of questions in their minds. Like, what's the big deal about the Spirit? How could that possibly be better than what we've been experiencing the last few years? Who is this Spirit and what is he going to do? Well, first off, uh, the Spirit will be proof that Jesus was telling the truth. That His narrative is the true narrative. If Jesus uh, has been confused, or if Jesus was outright lying to His disciples through the course of the years He was with them, then first off, uh, He stays dead. So there is no resurrection. Uh, But second off, there would be no Holy Spirit. And so even if there was a resurrection, and we have eyewitnesses of that account who wrote down what they saw and experienced, and there's tons of historical evidence uh, weighing in favor of an actual, literal, physical resurrection of the body of Jesus in history. So we have that, but God's actually given us more than that. He's actually been very gracious. Not only did the first disciples get to be eyewitnesses to the resurrection, but he's also given us the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is supposed to play a role in confirming what Jesus is saying. So he circles up his disciples and says, I'm going away, but when I get to the Father and I'm glorified there, the Holy Spirit is going to come and start doing stuff among you. And and so when that happens, when the Holy Spirit comes, in a sense, it's proof that Jesus was telling the truth, that he is where he said he would be, that he arrived at the place he said he would arrive. So as a, as a silly analogy, uh, you could imagine me coming to you and saying, hey, I'm getting ready. And you have to imagine it's like 100 years ago and there's no iPhones or whatever. But just picture in your mind uh, that I say, hey, I'm going to Florida. 
I'm going on a trip to Florida. It's going to take me weeks to get there. But when I get there, I will handpick you some Florida oranges and, and I will send them to you when I arrive in Florida. And then you imagine that uh, a couple more weeks go by and you're just hanging out uh, in the snow in Spokane. Uh, but then after two weeks, you, you, know, you come out to your doorstep and there uh, is a UPS box filled with oranges from Florida. No label, nothing on them, right? Well, that would be confirmation to you that I got where I was going, that I safely arrived in Florida and that I did the things that I said I was going to do. So there's a sense within our faith that we have eyewitness of the resurrection, but we also have the very Holy Spirit that Jesus said would be there. So he said all these things about himself and what he was going to do and what he would accomplish through his death and resurrection. And he said, in his confirmation of all of that, the, the Holy Spirit's going to come. Uh, and, and when the Holy Spirit comes, it won't just be proof that I've you know, arrived in Florida, so to speak, that I've done what I said I was going to do, but the Holy Spirit is also going to do stuff. The Holy Spirit is going to do stuff in your lives, and the Holy Spirit is going to do stuff in the world amongst people who don't know Jesus, who have never heard his name. And Jesus highlights a few of those things in the passage we read this morning. And if this passage sounds a little confusing to you, it's because it is confusing. It is confusing to me. Uh, in fact, in my preparation for this teaching, I, I just kept reading the short passage over and over again, and I was confused every time. Like, I'm doing the study, I'm reading the commentaries, I'm like trying to work through this stuff, and I go back and read it, and I'm like, yeah, I still don't get this. This is, it's just, it's a bit odd. Uh, this is what he says. He says, when he, the, the Holy Spirit, comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because people do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. And I'm not going to lie. Every time I read that, I feel, I feel confused. I'm a very logical person. In fact, at one point, I was actually teaching uh, logic, advanced logic courses to college graduates uh, as, as my job. And so I like connecting the dots. Like, if X is true, then Y must be true also. And these don't really work for me. Like, these things do not make sense in my mind. If you just said, hey, complete this sentence, you know, he will prove the world is wrong about righteousness, fill in the blank, because I'm going to the Father? Like, what? He will prove the world is in the wrong about judgment because, now you fill in the blank, because the prince of this world now stands condemned? Like, th that's confusing to me. That is not how I would have finished those sentences, what is Jesus talking about? Uh, but we have to start by reminding ourselves that almost uniquely in this passage, Jesus is talking about the effect of the Spirit uh, upon the non-believing world uh, that is often set in opposition against Him. So when the Holy Spirit, He often talks about the, the role of the Holy Spirit uh, is in our lives as followers of Jesus. So if you're a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes to strengthen, to encourage, to build up, to, to cultivate within you the fruit of the Spirit, 
and the gifts of the Spirit and manifestations of the Spirit. And there's all this stuff that the Holy Spirit is doing in your life and in my life as followers of Jesus. Um, Not so with the world. When the Holy Spirit uh, falls on the world that's that's set in opposition to Jesus, it has a different effect. There's more of this um, confrontational effect between the presence of God and those who are set in opposition against him. And so Jesus is saying, when the Holy Spirit falls on the world, he's actually going to prove that the world has been in the wrong. Before I was a lawyer, I was a pastor, so I, I, it's very easy for me. Nope, that's not what happens. Before I was a pastor, I was a lawyer, uh, and I'm really good at public speaking too. Um, and and I, so it's really easy for me to think in like court analogies. And so in this passage, he's almost describing the Holy Spirit like a prosecuting attorney. It's like, yeah, yeah this, this advocate that's coming is going to defend you against persecution. He's going to strengthen you in your inner man or your inner woman uh, in this sort of almost defensive way. But he's also going to go on the offensive. He's going to act like a prosecuting attorney. He's going to uh, drag the narrative, the false narratives of the world and the brokenness of the world will be brought to light. It'll be uh, shown for what it is. It will be uh, the words that Jesus is using here, uh, the Greek words uh, that John has recorded can almost be translated to expose, uh, to discipline, to convict uh, the world of its brokenness. It it means to expose or to prove guilty. Uh, the, The world in all of its brokenness and darkness and confusion, actually thinks it is very righteous. It doesn't think there's anything wrong. It thinks that kind of its own, uh, the, the path that it has chosen is a perfectly legitimate path. Uh, and yet, as the world is walking in that path, which it thinks is very good and righteous, from that perspective, it actually convicts Jesus. Jesus violates the righteousness of the world. So so as the world is saying, yes, we're righteous, we know what to do, we can define right and wrong for ourselves, this is the best way to live. When Jesus comes along, they actually say, Jesus, you are a violation of our sense of what is right and wrong, and we're going to pass judgment on you. We're going to put you to death because you do not conform to what we think is wrong or sinful and what we think is right or righteous. And so they pass, they have mixed up ideas about sin, what is, what is wrong. They have mixed up ideas about righteousness, what is best. And as a result, they pass judgment, sort of a false judgment uh, that's been inspired by the enemy that then gets passed on Jesus and his followers. And if you're a follower of Jesus in the first century, that might be very confusing. Like, why are things happening this way? It says when the Holy Spirit comes, it's going to begin to expose to the world that the world is actually in the wrong when it comes to sin, what is right, what is wrong, and who they should pass judgment on. That's what was happening in the first century when Jesus was around. The Pharisees and the religious leaders had a specific sense of this is right, this is wrong, this is who we should pass judgment on. But fast forward 2,000 years and our secular culture does the same thing today. Our secular culture has very specific ideas about what is wrong. They wouldn't use the word sinful because that sounds very religious, but they would say these things are wrong 
and they have very specific ideas about what is right or righteous. So, so what, is, what is right or righteous? Well, oftentimes, in our uh, day and, and age, it's things like tolerance and acceptance and just sort of putting your stamp of approval on, on any choice that any other human being would want to make. That's lifted up as something that is righteous in our culture. And if you don't do that, or you don't affirm everyone's choices, or you hold to biblical convictions, or you do this other list of things, well, that's wrong. That, that's morally wrong. You, you should not do that in our time, place, and culture. And so they don't say it's sinful, but that's essentially what they're saying, is that, that biblical convictions are sinful, but these are the things that are righteous. If you are righteous, you will do X, Y, and Z, and you will applaud and celebrate what we tell you to applaud and celebrate. And it's from that perspective, then, that secular culture then passes judgment on you. They say, well, we know what is right in the world, and we know what is wrong in the world. We've defined that for ourselves. We're thoroughly convinced of that, and you don't line up with that. You are not righteous in our eyes. You've actually violated what we think is righteous, so now we will pass judgment on you. Uh, And thankfully, in our country, there's not outright persecution. Uh, Followers of Jesus are are not uh, being arrested or put to death like they are in many countries. But there's still the sense of, hey, we, we need to screen you out of society. You and your opinions and your convictions, you have to take that out of the government, which was actually never the original intent uh, when the government was set up. You, but now it's turned to, we have to screen that out of the government. We have to screen that out of the, the school system. You have to be shamed on social media and other public platforms if you do not agree with us on what is righteous and what is not righteous. So now there's a judgment being passed on Jesus, on the scriptures, on followers of Jesus from the perspective of we are thoroughly convinced that this is right and this is wrong, that this is righteous and this is sinful. So just like in the first century, there's this whole grid, lens, narrative through which people are viewing the world, that actually makes them antagonistic toward Jesus. And so part of the, and and that's what Jesus is getting at. He said, this is one of the many things the Holy Spirit's going to do. When the Holy Spirit falls on a place, on a community of people who don't know Jesus, it's going to bring these things to light. Without the Holy Spirit, we we don't have that. We can't see that. The world does not inherently have the ability to discern those things. Remember going back to all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden, they seize the opportunity, I want to define good and evil for myself. And that has trickled down through all of our generations. Broken humanity really struggles with figuring out what is truly right, what is truly wrong, and who should we judge as a result. So when the Holy Spirit comes, one one of the beautiful things it will do is actually open our eyes to those things. And I experienced this in my own life. Uh, Many of you know that up until the age uh, 20, 21, somewhere in there, uh, I was an atheist and was very established in my atheism. I had read the books. I had thought through things. Uh, I I, I, I wasn't naive in the way I was approaching it. And uh, I had very clear ideas adopted from secular culture about what is right and what is wrong. And to be perfectly honest, I passed judgment on Christians 
I didn't even know very many of them. But when I did know them or meet them, I passed judgment on them because I knew what was right and I knew what was wrong. And, and they did not match that grid. And, and it wasn't until the Holy Spirit came that those things started to change. And as, as I started to edge closer to God and I eventually gave my life to Jesus and the, the Holy Spirit came into my life, then I could finally see, oh my gosh, my ideas about what is right and what is wrong are actually really mixed up. I felt very comfortable with them until the Holy Spirit came. Because in my atheism, there's no problem with getting drunk. In my atheism, there's no problem with sleeping around. If anything, that's a good thing. In, in my atheism, I, I have all of these categories. These things are all perfectly okay. These things are not okay. But then when the Holy Spirit came, instantly, those things began to change. I had this sense of, oh my gosh, I, I am not righteous on my own. I think I'm so righteous. I think that if there is a heaven, that, that surely I would be admitted to that place. In reality, I am so far from that. Placed in front of Jesus and his beauty, I'm just like, oh my gosh, I, I am a, woe is me, says Isaiah. Like, I am a broken man. I am full of darkness and confusion. I have been living by the wrong narratives. And one of the fascinating things was, looking back on my own story, uh, nobody knew that I had given my life to Jesus. It had just happened in a moment of, of worship. Um, and it's a longer story, but I was in a, in a place of worship gave my life to Jesus. No human, other human being was involved in that. And when I went back to my normal life, I was instantly convicted of those things. Nobody had to tell me. I didn't even own a Bible. And I just knew, oh my gosh, the way that I have been living is actually, uh, is, is actually plunging me into death and not life. This, is, this, is not, this was not God's intent. It was, it's fascinating looking backwards, that it was just the work of the Spirit, and overnight it was like, those things are, are not for me. That, that is wrong. That is, that is ill-fitting. That does not fit who I am. And, and so I gave those things up. I walked away from my old lifestyle as a result of the Holy Spirit sort of uh, turning on the light in the interior of my life and just saying, whoa, I have just been, what have I been doing? But that doesn't happen in the world. That doesn't happen apart from what Jesus is talking about. That when the Holy Spirit comes, He will open our eyes uh, to where we're, where we're at in terms of sin and righteousness and judgment. Um, as an analogy, uh, you could imagine that you are uh, in, in a dark room. Imagine you're in a large room like the one we're in now but it's full of furniture and different obstacles and things in there. It's pitch black and your job is to navigate from one side of that room to the other side. And so you're kind of walking around, but as you do, you're bumping into things and you're sort of disoriented, and you, it, but you have within your mind, you know, as you're walking around in the darkness, you have a mental map of where you think you are and where you think you need to go, right? Even if your eyes are closed, you would generate a map in your mind. Okay, this is, I think I'm in this section of the room. I think that thing that I just bumped into uh, must be the couch. I think I know where, that, where, where the couch is, so now I'm going to like head this way. This is the direction I need to go. But then imagine that as you're struggling through that, someone came along and just flipped on the lights. All of a sudden, you can see everything. And in that moment, you realize, oh my gosh, I'm not at all where I thought I was in the room. 
And that thing that I bumped into, that wasn't the couch, that was like a dresser. And I'm actually like going into this dead end corner that I can't get out of. And, and I was about to slam into this thing that I couldn't see. Well, in that moment, you have to make a choice. You say, well, either I continue in this sort of nonsensical way I've been going, or now that the light's on, I'm going to like make a new mental map and figure, and, oh, I, I'm going to turn. This is actually a definition of repentance. I'm going to turn and, and come up with a new way to go. And now I see the path. And it's actually in a totally different direction. And, and that's the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives and in those who, who are just lost in the world, who don't know Him. The, the Holy Spirit, the beauty of the Spirit, the gift of the Spirit, is that He can come along and He can flip those lights on, and all of a sudden we can see. We can navigate rightly. We can actually understand the obstacles and what actually is sin and what actually is righteousness. And wow, this judgment I've been passing on people, that wasn't right at all. And we have a chance to then navigate the right way. Uh, And we need that. We need to receive that as a gift. And when that happens in your life, you have a choice, right? Like the lights get flipped on and you can choose to turn uh, or repent and choose a new path following after Jesus more clearly. Or you can just say, you know what? That's okay. I'd rather just do it on my own. Uh, You know, just turn the lights off. I actually prefer the dark. We can turn those lights back off and just kind of go back to what we were doing. So when the Holy Spirit comes, nobody likes the word conviction. I don't like the word conviction. But it actually comes to us as a gift that we can receive. Uh, And and that would actually be how I would boil down like the heart behind uh, the the passage this morning. If you feel the conviction of the Spirit, you have to receive that as a gift. (laughs) Say, thank you, Lord, for turning on the lights in this moment. Thank you for, I'm a little embarrassed because I was sort of banging my head against the wrong wall thinking I was doing the right thing. It's a little bit embarrassing, uh, but, but I'm going to receive this as a gift and I'm going to act on it. I'm going to change course and go a different direction. And it's worth separating in your mind the difference between um, conviction, which is the gift of the Spirit, and condemnation or shame. Those are actually separate things that you need to place in separate categories. The conviction of the Spirit is the lights are on and man, I was dead wrong. I thought I knew what I was doing. I thought I knew what life was about. I thought it was fair to pass judgment on those people. It was. That wasn't. I was dead wrong, and I'm going to turn the other way as the light of God comes into my life. That's conviction. Uh, Condemnation and shame are actually tools that the enemy uses to sort of suck the life out of you. This is who you are. You're dirty. You're shameful. You're broken. They become identity statements. That's from the enemy. That's trying to destroy you versus the spirit that's saying, come follow me into life that is truly life. So we have to be able to differentiate those things. Turning on the light is a gift. Conviction is a really good thing. And I experience this all the time. I could share a lot more about what that looked like in my ultimate turning point from atheism to follower of Jesus. Uh, And it's really fun to talk about that. Uh, What's not as fun to acknowledge is that this still happens all the time in my life as a follower of Jesus. 
I, I still receive the conviction of the Spirit when it comes to what is right and what is wrong and, and the role of judgment in my life. Those same three things that Jesus is talking about. In fact, earlier in, this, earlier in the week, just a couple of days ago, I was really wrestling with, I, I, was real, I was honestly, I was passing judgment on one of my friends uh, over things that had happened in their past that I had no business judging them on, right? In light of the ultimate gospel of God's grace and his righteousness and the role that he plays in our lives and the role that he had played in this person's life, I honestly did not have any, but in my heart I thought, no, this is right and this is wrong and you were wrong and now I'm judging you for the choices that you made and the th- that's just wrong. And there was this like bitterness that was coming into my heart over the decisions that, that they had made and the way that was affecting me now in the present. And, and there was this like anger and this bitterness and I was bringing it before the Lord. I don't think I was doing a very good job at it, but I was still trying to bring it before the Lord. And in, through those, those days and those times of prayer and wrestling with that before the Lord, this is what happened. The Holy Spirit came and it was like, that, that's sin. Like you're off, you're wrong you should not be judging them that way. Your concepts of sin and righteousness and like you're not fully acknowledging the cross and the resurrection and the righteousness that I give to people and the cleansing and forgiveness that I bring into their life. You're not reflecting my character of grace and forgiveness and welcoming them right into the heart of God. Like you are wrong. This is him speaking to me. Like I was wrong. I was wrong about my concept of sin. I was wrong about my concept of righteousness. And I was wrong in passing judgment on that person. So in that moment, then, as the lights are turned on and I realize I've been navigating this situation the wrong way, I have to make a choice. So I'm saying, oh, Lord, I feel so, I feel so hard-hearted right now. Like It's so much easier for me to judge and be bitter than it is to walk in your grace in this moment but I see that I was wrong. I want to go this way. Lord, would you help lead me down down that path? Don't turn the lights off again. I don't want to go back to to what I had over these last few days. And and so that was me firsthand over the last few days experiencing what Jesus is talking about. And in that moment, oh man, it can be so brutal. Nobody wants to admit that they're wrong. I I hate that. I hate admitting like, no, I was wrong to judge them in that way because it feels so right in the moment. But, I, but I, have to, I have to line my heart up with God's heart. And the only way I even know that I'm off is because the Holy Spirit is coming and doing that work that is ultimately liberation, that is ultimately taking the chains and shackles off so that I can walk more freely in the grace and beauty and forgiveness of Jesus. But what if the Holy Spirit's not there? Where does that leave me, even as a follower of Jesus? Where does that leave the world with all of its mixed up narratives? This is one of the many things that the Spirit does. And it's not the most fun to talk about, but it is necessary and it is beautiful. What's the alternative? That, the world, that I'm left in my atheism. That I'm left with my false narratives. Or that I'm a follower of Jesus who starts looking less and less like Jesus because of the things that I allow to creep in, because I say, no, 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 I, I know, I've read the Bible, I know what's sin, and I know what's righteousness, and I know how to 
pass judgment on you and, and, and then the Spirit comes and arrests me. It says, you are walking in the way that leads toward death and not toward life. How do I want to respond to that? Leave me alone, Lord. I would rather think this way. Or, oh, Lord, I don't want to think this way. You're flipping on the lights, man. Just give me a soft-hearted repentance that says I'm in the wrong corner. I'm banging my head against the wrong wall. Lord, have mercy on me and lead me into greater life. That's the, the role that the Spirit plays in my life as a follower of Jesus and in our lives as a community and ultimately in the world. I don't know about you, and I actually hope this isn't true of you, but I can get really discouraged about the state of the world, about how deeply ingrained some of the, the false secular narratives, even ones that I was raised with, how deeply those become ingrained in people, how skeptical and cynical it feels like so many people are right now in our culture, how sure they are of themselves that this is right and this is wrong, and therefore you are wrong for following after Jesus. And, and sometimes it can feel like those structures, those narratives, those beliefs are almost immovable. I don't know if you've ever felt that. Or you're just like, man, this, this person, I love this person. I want to see them flourishing in Jesus. But it, it's like there's this force field of like, how on earth do I reach you? How on earth do I help you deconstruct some of these false secular narratives that you've inherited? It can, things can feel so immovable in the life of an individual or in our culture at large. But I think if Jesus were here this morning, speaking to his disciples in the same way he, we just heard, I think he would remind us that our culture is just one move of God away from revival. Like what we look at and we say, this is immovable. I can look at my own family. Oh, my mother, my brother, my sister. Like These people are never going to see Jesus for who he is let alone the culture of, of thousands and millions of people that I don't know. Like it, it's, it's never going to change, Lord. And yet what Jesus can see from his perspective is that this is part of the gift and power of the Spirit. That when the Holy Spirit falls on a community or a city or a nation, people start waking up. And all of those things that they were so sure of and that felt so immovable begin to evaporate and melt away. It's like the ultimate prosecuting attorney stands up publicly and just says, well, what about this? And what about this? And what about this? And all of a sudden you're saying, oh, shoot. I never thought about that. The things that I'm clinging to don't actually make sense. And, and that's what we actually mean by revival. Revival is not a time of church growth. It's not a time even where like, hey, these like outreach programs or this youth thing is like going really well. And all the churches in Spokane have just doubled in size or tripled in size. That's really exciting. But that's not revival. If you go and study revivals in history, what happens is that usually a very small group of followers in, of Jesus feel led to pray, and they actually start with their own repentance. Oh, Lord, just, just cleanse me. Just, just help me. Just throw out everything that's not of you. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm over it. I don't want lukewarm. I don't want half-hearted. I don't want all these idols, you know, around the cross or whatever. Just, like, clear all the junk out. We want you. Sometimes it's four people, five people, ten people, one church, whatever it is. And they say, no, we feel drawn 
to get on our knees and pray for the Holy Spirit to fall on the community. And they pray. I mean, they seriously pray. It's not this like half-hearted, I guess we should pray. Like They're like on their knees, hearts cracked open for the Lord, just praying. And sometimes they pray for days. Sometimes they pray for weeks or months or years of sustained prayer. But eventually, the Holy Spirit falls on their community. And this is what's remarkable and what mirrors my experience is that they don't talk to anyone. They're not going door to door. They're not doing anything. The Holy Spirit falls on a place and all of a sudden, thousands of people who had no interest in God, who thought terrible things about Jesus in the Scripture, who weren't even curious, all of a sudden wake up with this hunger. Say, oh my gosh, I need to seek after the Lord. The people around them are like, what are you talking about? Like, you hate that stuff. And they're like, I need to go find God. And it's happened over and over again in history. And thousands of people go and seek it out. And I hope when that happens, when that happens again, because it's cyclical, I hope when that happens again, there are healthy church communities ready to just welcome people in as they flood in the door and receive them as their own. So that's part of what you do when, they're it, when things are just dry and dead. As you say, we, we want to be ready to receive people. But, but notice the role of the Holy Spirit in genuine re- revivals throughout history. Thousands of people, no one's talking to them. The Holy Spirit falls and proves that the world is in the wrong about sin, righteousness, and judgment. And people just get hungry for him. And oh man, I, I hope that's something that we carry in our hearts, that we pray for as the Lord leads us to pray for. Lord, we need something more than, than, a, than church strategy right now. We need the Holy Spirit to do what only He can do in our city and in our nation. But it starts here. It starts with us. So what I want to do uh, as we close is just ask... Uh, few simple questions uh, and invite the Holy Spirit to come and speak to us. Uh, If you've been around for the last couple years, you know that there are certain times and seasons when we uh, actually talk a lot about revival and get really excited about that. Uh, But I also want to make sure, I think what God does in preparation for that is that he prepares the hearts of those who already belong to him. He says, you, you come to me. I'm going to flip the lights on in, in your life and, and help you to reorient and navigate wisely before uh, I, I propel you outward for the sake of the world. So, um, Raven, you can go ahead and throw those questions up. Uh, I'm going to pray for us. And uh, we're just going to sit with these questions for a few minutes. The questions are these. Uh, Lord, what do you want me to know? And how do you want me to respond? So for me as a visual person, I, I literally picture like a room of, of my life or my life map, map and lights being flicked on and saying, what do, you, what do you want me to see, Lord? What do you want me to know about the way I've been operating? And then how do you want me to respond? How do you want me to navigate afresh uh, into, uh, into your grace, into your truth, into your kingdom, into the freedom that comes? 
with, with being unshackled and brought into the fullness uh, of the Spirit of God. So I'm going to pray, and then uh, we'll take a few minutes. Holy Spirit, we invite you here, Lord. And though we long, oh man, some of us have wept over this city and over this nation. Uh, just as you wept over Jerusalem and just said, oh man, I just, the Lord just wants to gather you into his light, into his freedom, into his undeserved favor and love like he just he just wants to scoop the lost world and draw them into that and god there are times when we catch wind of that where our hearts align with your hearts and we we weep over the lost we weep over our city and we need to do that from time to time even though we're full of hope and we're full of joy we, we need to join you from time to time, and just weeping over our city. And yet, Lord, we, we also pray that you would do a, a cleansing work in us. And as, as we were uh, praying before the gathering, it was really led to this place in Second um, Kings where uh, there's, there's a bit of a revival, I would say, in Israel. Uh, they've, they've had years, <clears throat> if not decades, if not centuries, of slipping into sort of confusion and, and moral and spiritual decay. And then there's, there's this moment where everyone begins to turn back. It's like the lights are flipped on across Israel and they realize, wow, we have, we have idols everywhere. And we, we actually have, um, it's, it's sort of graphic, but they had male prostitute shrine rooms built onto the temple of God as a means of worship. And they had all of this stuff that over the years, probably through incremental changes, had just crept its way in and nobody really had a problem with it. It was all of this compromise and idolatry and just weird, dark stuff happening right in the midst of the people of God. And until the Holy Spirit came along and flipped on the lights and, and brought the truth into the spotlight, nobody really did anything. But then there was this moment when it happened and everybody just said, whoa, let's get it done. Let's go and tear down those rooms that we had added to the temple that only made it worse. Let's go and cut down these idols and these false things. Let's like, let's, let's, and they were like lighting things on fire and grinding things into dust. And it was like, no, this is the time. The, the Spirit is empowering us to, to cleanse the temple and prepare for what's next. And so Holy Spirit, as we receive you into this place this morning, I pray that you would do something similar, that, that if some of us are stuck in apathy or um, patterns of darkness, or we've sort of built on rooms to the house, so to speak, that just house dark things, God, would this be a moment where the lights get flipped on and we find a fresh, desire in our hearts to be free of it. To just say, Holy Spirit, just walk with me. Just walk with me through my life. Would you, would you flip some tables uh, as we walk? Would you tear, begin tearing down strongholds as we walk? Would you do in miniature in my heart and in my life what we long for you to do for our city and our nation? So we say, come Holy Spirit, 
Speak to us now. Guide us into the truth. We come before you asking, is there anything that you want us to see that we haven't been seeing? And are there places where you would want us to adjust course in our lives? We receive you now as a gift. We receive your your conviction as a gift. And we invite you to guide us into greater life than we're experiencing right now. Show us the way. In Jesus' name.